Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the expectation that the House January 6th Committee on Monday will vote to send criminal referrals to the Department of Justice, urging the Attorney General to charge Trump under 18 U.S.C. 2383 for insurrection, 18 U.S.C. 1512C for obstruction of justice and 18 U.S.C. 371 for conspiracy to defraud the United States government. Joining us to discuss these charges and others likely to be referred against the White House insurrectionist lawyer John Eastman is James Zirin, a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York and the host of the critically acclaimed television talk show Conversations with Jim Zirin, which airs on PBS. He's the author of Supremely Partisan, How Raw Politics Tips the Scale in the United States Supreme Court, and Plaintiff-in-Chief, a portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 lawsuits. He is a contributing editor at the Washington Monthly, and we will discuss his latest article, What Will the Manhattan DA Do Next with Trump? Then we'll look into how, after the nomination of Robert Bork was blocked, a few far-right religious zealots raised enormous sums of dark money from anonymous plutocrats in a decades-long project to capture the Supreme Court. Joining us is Linda Greenhouse, a lecturer in law and a senior research scholar in law at Yale Law School. She covered the Supreme Court for the New York Times between 1978 and 2008 and received the Pulitzer Prize in 1998 and the Goldsmith Career Award for Excellence in Journalism from Harvard University's Kennedy School in 2004. Her books include Before Roe v. Wade, Voices That Shaped the Abortion Debate Before the Supreme Court's Ruling, The Burger Court and the Rise of the Judicial Right, and most recently, Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and Twelve Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. We will discuss her article at The Atlantic, What in the World Happened to the Supreme Court. Then finally, we'll explore the curse of the man-child and what it will take to be able to ignore the two attention-seeking narcissists, Musk and Trump, who dominate the headlines with infantile trolling and tacky grifting. Joining us is David Roth, who has written about sports, politics and culture in Deadspin, The New Republic, SB Nation, New York Magazine, New York Daily News and other publications. He's the co-founder of Defector Media, where his latest articles are Major Announcement from Donald Trump Turns Out to Be NFTs of His Head Photoshopped Onto a Skinny Man in a Tuxedo and The Eternal Mystery of a Rich Man's Politics. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now is James Zirin, a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York and the host of the critically acclaimed television show Conversations with Jim Zirin, which airs on PBS. He's the author of Supremely Partisan, How Raw Politics Tips the Scales in the United States Supreme Court, and Plaintiff-in-Chief, a portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 lawsuits. He's a contributing editor at the Washington Monthly, where his latest article is What Will the Manhattan DA Do Next with Trump? Welcome to Background Briefing, James Zirin. Delighted to be with you, Ian. Well, it's a big day tomorrow, Monday, it seems. The January 6th Select Committee apparently is preparing to vote on criminal referrals, urging the Justice Department to go after at least three criminal charges against former President Donald Trump, which include 18 U.S.C. 2383 insurrection, 18 U.S.C. 1512 obstruction of an official proceedings, and 18 U.S.C. 371, conspiracy to defraud the United States government. So that's quite a broadside, wouldn't you say? It is a broadside, although uh, all of those statutes have been suggested uh, for months as being applicable to uh, the uh, conduct uh, that was established by the January 6th committee. So this doesn't come as a great surprise. Uh, They were expected to do something like this, and um, uh, it's... uh, uh, quite in order that they went ahead and did it. So how's this going to change the, the political climate? Because in your article you suggested that uh, this could actually rebound and help Trump. Well, it could if uh, Trump is perceived as a victim and uh, uh, and if it fires up his base that uh, the uh, Democratic establishment is out to get him. Uh, and because uh, these are legislative charges uh, from a committee, the majority of uh, which is composed of the Democratic congressmen, uh, whether it's seen as a uh, purely partisan statement to try to uh, somehow obstruct his candidacy. But it does have great moral force because there's a lot of evidence to establish the charges that they're leveling at him. Well, it seems as if the January 6th committee lit a fire under the Department of Justice. I mean, these are referrals only. It's not as if the January 6th committee can go ahead and prosecute Trump. But do you agree, Jim, that essentially the January 6th committee lit a fire under the DOJ? The DOJ's well, absolutely got no choice but to take this seriously. Well, uh, it's correct that what they say is not binding on the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice has the sole authority to prosecute or not to prosecute. It would seem to put political pressure on Merrick Garland, who's been so reluctant to do anything. Uh, but, of course, Garland has appointed a special counsel in the person of Jack Smith. And uh, Jack Smith is uh, uh, supposedly above politics, and it really doesn't increase any pressure on him to be guided by anything other than uh, the law and the facts. So the other the other move against Trump is coming from Congressman Pat Cipollone, who's introducing a bill to essentially disqualify Trump from further office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. What do you make of that? Well, that uh, is uh, certainly appropriate uh, because the conduct warrants it. The question is, uh, can uh, the Congress uh, make a legislative judgment uh, that someone should be disqualified from holding public office? And it's argued by some that that would run afoul of the Bill of Attainder Clause in Article 1 
Section 9, which is you can't uh, single out uh, a citizen and um, have uh, legislation, a bill of attainder, in which you outlaw uh, him for conduct he's uh, engaged in. Uh, now, I would argue that uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment would have no meaning if, uh, because it refers in the body, in the text of the uh, amendment, uh, to uh, the Congress uh, enacting legislation to uh, execute uh, the disqualification. So it would be meaningless if uh, it would run afoul of the Bill of Attainder Clause. And since it's, uh, it exists in an amendment to the Constitution, and I hate to use uh, this uh, metaphor, but whether it doesn't trump Article One and permit the Congress to pass legislation disqualifying uh, Trump from holding public office, uh, Trump would, of course, litigate that, and it's going to would be a matter for the courts in the last analysis anyway. Well, it looks as if the referrals against Trump won't be the only criminal referrals coming from the the January Sixth Committee uh, on Monday. They apparently are also considering referring charges against John Eastman, who uh, you recall in the hearings, uh, one of the White House lawyers, Hirschman, I think his name is, advised Eastman to get a, a good lawyer when he was floating this idea of these alternative fake electors, etc. And believe it or not, this independent state legislature theory that now the Supreme Court is, uh, is entertaining, that was the basis that Eastman was using for his bogus attempts to overturn Biden's victory. Yes, well, I, I think it's uh, somewhat different uh, if uh, the uh, state, assuming the Supreme Court says it's all up to the state legislatures, it's the different situation if today uh, the state legislature in Wisconsin uh, enacted a bill saying that they would select the electors for president of the United States, um, and a situation, as we saw, in 2020 and 2021, uh, where the people uh, voted to elect the slate of electors. And then Eastman uh, said, well, oh, no, the people's will doesn't count, uh, as it has since uh, the, uh, uh, the dawn of the republic. Uh, it's, the, it's the will of the state legislatures, and we're going to change the ground rules in midstream. That didn't work, wouldn't work, and uh, any lawyer who looked at it uh, knew that... Uh, what uh, Eastman was suggesting was illegal. So what do you think then, I'm just wanting to go through the, the many threads here as the law appears to close in on Donald Trump. I was always been mystified by what happened with Alvin Bragg in uh, the new DA in Manhattan who inherited the case from Cyrus Van Jr. And they had really seasoned prosecutors, uh, Pomerantz, who is a specialist on RICO. Uh, but there's always been some mystery as to why Bragg decided not to go ahead with that case. And, of course, the prosecutors protested at the time. Have you figured out what happened there? Well, what happened there is uh, Bragg uh, only assumed office in January 1st of this year, uh, 2022. Uh, he uh, ran as a progressive prosecutor. And uh, he, uh, on day one, he uh, issued a memorandum um, stating all the crimes he was not going to prosecute, which is really very unusual. Um, he uh, joins the ranks of uh, Chesa Boudin in San Francisco, who was recalled. We don't have recall in New York, but Chesa Boudin was recalled because he was a progressive prosecutor. And there was just too much 
crime on the streets that was unaccounted for, and the citizenry was up in arms. Bragg withdrew that memorandum that he released on day one. And, but however, he continued uh, in a path of progressive prosecution. And there was a lot of uh, political heat directed his way, particularly in the gubernatorial race uh, this past November. And um, so uh, Bragg, uh, I think uh, I call him, uh, and he kind of uh, has this appearance, uh, the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz, and uh, who really didn't want to roll the dice against Donald Trump and lose so early in his tenure. So he had on his staff uh, two special prosecutors who were uh, inherited from uh, Cy Vance. One was Mark Pomerantz, who was a preeminent litigator and former trial lawyer. I wouldn't say his expertise is confined to RICO cases. I think uh, all forms of uh, white-collar criminal cases are uh, within his remit. Uh, And uh, uh, Kerry Dunn, who came from Davis Polk, who... Uh, briefed and argued uh, the case in the Supreme Court on uh, Trump's tax returns and won it. They were uh, they put together a case uh, of uh, based on the inconsistency between uh, Trump's financial statements for uh, uh, financial reporting purposes and his tax returns. He uh, uh, understated his uh, assets and properties for purposes of. Um, uh, his tax returns and overstated them for purposes of uh, financial reporting. So, and he used those financial statements to get loans. Uh, so uh, it seems to me, based on what was publicly revealed, that it was pretty much uh, an easy case to prove. Um, as Bragg later found out in the case of uh, the Trump Organization, which he convicted uh, based on the testimony of Weisselberg. In any event, there were certain legal problems with bringing the case under New York statutes, but the uh, there were strong arguments the other way, and the two prosecutors who resigned last February felt that there was enough evidence to go ahead. Anyway, flash forward to uh, the conviction of the Trump Organization, and um, Bragg announces that he uh, is adding some heft to uh, his staff, a prosecutor who was number three in the Justice Department, I believe his name is Colangelo, and uh, he is investigating uh, the payment uh, to uh, uh, Stormy Daniels, uh, and uh, which was not reported correctly on um, uh, the uh, uh, federal election forms when Trump first ran for the presidency. So uh, you have a sex scandal at the time of his liaison with Stormy Daniels, Trump was married to Melania, and Melania was pregnant with the child. And a jury is probably not going to take well to that. Adultery is a crime in New York, not a crime in California where the event took place. But it's there's really enough there on a filing of a false document with a public agency to... Uh, make uh, for a uh, uh, a criminal prosecution. So we'll have to see where that goes. Whether Bragg really has the stomach to be the first one in uh, before the Justice Department and before uh, Fulton County, Georgia, uh, remains to be seen. But that case is there, and it's 
being investigated. So, James Aaron, in your article at the Washington Monthly, what will the Manhattan DA do next with Trump? You say that it could backfire any one of these prosecutions that you just listed, and there are apparently a whole bunch of other smaller ones as well. You say that defeated authoritarians almost always benefit from what they portray as persecution. Hitler came back from jail where he wrote Mein Kampf, Peron returned to power in Argentina, and Napoleon bolted from Elba after nine months. The prosecution is the po- is the propulsion. It's human nature to want to come back, and stories of the unjustly persecuted resonate deeply. So do you think that this same man now who announced he's running for president, obviously to get some legal protection, it may be illusory on his part, and now he's, you know, just a few days ago, he said he was going to make a great announcement and it turned out to be a grift to sell trading cards. And he's, even conservatives are now distancing himself from him. So, Although the sales of the cards have sold out, it appears. But, uh, oh, really? Maybe people well, think it's a collector's item and they'll appreciate in value. Oh, really? <laughs> so uh, a good investment? <laughs> well, in any case... Is it your opinion that he's still going to be around in 2024? Well, he, first place, <laughs> Trump is someone who uh, uh, marches to his own drummer. And you would think that anyone who was uh, indicted or convicted of a crime could not run for president. Uh, fortunately for Trump and unfortunately for us, the Constitution doesn't say that. So he's free to run for president and... Uh, whether he's indicted or convicted or both. Eugene Victor Debs in 1920 ran for president from jail and uh, got a million votes. So uh, it's possible for him to do that. The question is, can a major political party, the Republican Party, that has always been such a symbol of rectitude, the party of Lincoln and uh, Reagan, can uh, the Republican Party nominate someone who's under indictment? Uh, particularly indictment for serious crimes where the proof would seem to be quite compelling. And so will the Republicans desert Trump in large numbers? I mean, that's going to depend in part on the primary process. Uh, uh, He uh, said to have about 33 percent, maybe somewhat less, of the Republican vote. That's those are the hardcore MAGAs who don't care whether he's indicted, convicted, or whether he kills people on Fifth Avenue, they're going to support him. And if he's on a uh, a podium debate platform with a lot of other candidates, uh, like DeSantis, uh, like Hutchinson from Arkansas, like uh, uh, Youngkin from Virginia, uh, like Bolton, who said they might be interested in uh, being the nation's chief executive, will the rest of the vote divide? in a way that he could capture the nomination with 33% of the vote. This is basically what he did the last time. And the question is, will he do it? Then if he gets the nomination, are people like Liz Cheney uh, apt to launch a third-party candidacy? Or John Bolton, who said he would if uh, if Trump is the nominee? And is that going to divide the Republican vote sufficiently? Um, that's really going to be the issue. But going back to 2016, where he knocked all the other candidates off the island because he was a reality TV guy, and it was reality TV, um, unfortunately. 
and the mainstream media gave him $3 billion worth of free advertising. You're a New Yorker and formerly with the Southern District of New York. Everybody I talked to in New York have known Trump over the years. Can't believe uh, that nobody, they always thought he was a joke. He's had so many, I don't know where you call them, run-ins but with the law. But if you talk to counterintelligence people in the FBI, they say these, the guy's been laundering Russian money forever. I mean, uh, the casinos in Atlantic City has had all kinds of corruption going on there. His father, of course, had many run-ins with the law, and his grandfather ran brothels. So is it, am I missing something here? How did this guy with a, a record like that, and admittedly he had he was very proactive in protecting himself in terms of how Roy Cohen had taught him, is there a failure here that this guy ever got on that stage with those other candidates? Well, uh, Machiavelli uh, famously said, politics is the art of the possible. Anything can happen. You can get in the ring. You and I could get in the ring. We could land a lucky punch, even though everyone would say we have no chance at all at the outset. So I think basically uh, Trump was the exception that proved the rule. Uh, he happened to catch the tide of a certain feeling in um, our country at the time. Uh, there were a number of factors. Uh, one was uh, a perception that Hillary Clinton uh, wasn't straight. That is to say, they called her crooked Hillary. They said, lock her up. Uh, that uh, she overly accentuated political correctness. Uh, he ran on a kind of a silent platform of uh, white supremacy, of uh, uh, political incorrectness. He was willing to blast uh, John McCain. He was willing to blast um, uh, Gold Star parents uh, whose children had perished in uh, the Middle East. And uh, somehow or other, that was high entertainment. People went for that. And they thought that uh, Obama uh, had failed to uh, serve us well. And the Clintons had failed to serve us well. And this was a solution. I think we've learned over the uh, four years of Trump's presidency that it was not the solution. Um, many died needlessly of COVID. Um, he was uh, skeptical of the very vaccine whose production he expedited. His prescriptions, his household remedies for, uh, for COVID would have proved fatal if uh, they had been applied. In fact, there were people in hospitals who would tried to inject themselves with Clorox or something else. And he um, was rejected by the American people. Uh, I think if he ran again, my hope is he'd be rejected again, even more decisively. And he is hidden behind the cloak that he won the whole election, and that the election was fraudulent, where there's no proof whatsoever of it. Right, but that's a desperate gambit to get the presidency back and to get the protection did you kind of oh, I, 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 I don't think it's a, a gambit really to get the presidency back. I don't. He's shrewd. I don't think realistically he thinks he could ever get the presidency back, but he could convince his base and could convince others that the Democrats are fraudulent and they fixed the elections. And you have a, a, another wrinkle in the coming election, and that is uh, this independent state legislature theory, which was uh, being litigated by the Supreme Court in the Moore case. And if the court holds that state legislatures uh, determine congressional elections, and analogously it would hold that uh, state legislatures can determine uh, who the electors are, 
not the people, uh, a totally anti-democratic result, uh, and which cuts against all the traditions of American government. But if uh, the Republican legislatures in key swing states can determine who the electors are, despite what the people say, Trump would have a decent chance of winning. So just in closing then, uh, Jim Zarin, Trump, of course, is not on trial yet and he hasn't been indicted. But at the end of the day, are you suggesting, or at least I'm suggesting, that maybe half the American people should be put on trial? For well, How could you um, vote for this person? I, I think, yes. I mean, I think Trump can be blamed for all that's happened, uh, but the people who support him can also be blamed. Uh, I think the, the people who support him, who contributed hundreds of thousands of dollars to Herschel Walker, who was an outrageous candidate in Georgia when they were from out of state and had uh, no interest in Georgia and no interest in the Constitution and no interest in electing someone who would uh, serve the people of Georgia. Uh, I think they're to blame as well. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, James Arnn. Well, I'm delighted to uh, have, and I hope I've shed some light on this fascinating subject. Fascinating and depressing at the same time. <laughs> so, Unfortunately depressing. Again, I've been speaking with James Iron, who's a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York and the host of the critically acclaimed television talk show Conversations with Jim Zarin, which airs on PBS. He's the author of Supremely Partisan, How Raw Politics Tips the Scales in the United States Supreme Court, and Plaintiff-in-Chief, a portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 lawsuits. And he's a contributing editor at the Washington Monthly, where his latest article is What Will the Manhattan DA Do Next with Trump? We can take a brief station break. We're back looking at how, after the nomination of Robert Bork was blocked, a few right-wing religious zealots raised enormous sums of dark money from anonymous plutocrats in a decade-long project to capture the Supreme Court. Behind bars, the color of the sun will break this heart of mine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Linda Greenhouse, a lecturer in law and a senior research scholar in law at Yale Law School. She covered the Supreme Court for the New York Times between 1978 and 2008 and received the Pulitzer Prize in 1998 and the Goldsmith Career Award for Excellence in Journalism from Harvard Kennedy School in 2004. Her books include Before Roe v. Wade, Voices That Shaped the Abortion Debate Before the Supreme Court's Rulings, The Burger Court and the Rise of the Judicial Right, and most recently, Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. And she has an article at The Atlantic, What in the World Happened to the Supreme Court? Welcome to Background Briefing, Linda Greenhouse. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And your article traces the history of this right-wing takeover of the Supreme Court with a 6-3 to three majority, starting with Bork. But it ends up in the current situation where you suggest that things could get worse. Well, we're learning from an article at The Guardian on Friday that eight conservative groups that have submitted amicus briefs 
in this Supreme Court's case over the independent state legislatures, which has been considered a fringe theory, they've received close to $90 million in anonymous dark money donations, among them Honest Elections Project of Leonard Leo's, the Claremont Institute of John Eastman, and uh, Cleda Mitchell's Public Interest Legal Foundation. So what's extraordinary about this is these petitioners, some of them at least, Cleda Mitchell and, uh, and Eastman, attempted to undermine the 2020 elections by relying on this very same independent state legislative theory. So does that mean that Supreme Court could in fact legalize the what was an, an attempted theft of the 2020 election? Well, I mean, theoretically, yes. Although the specific question before the court in the part of the independent state legislature theory that the Supreme Court case tees up doesn't actually go to federal presidential elections. That that would be, I think, a subsequent case. The one before the Supreme Court deals with the power of the state legislatures, the unique, supposedly unique power of the state legislatures over drawing district lines in federal congressional elections. But uh, the Guardian story and other things I've read on the web about the flow of dark money into the groups that are advocating this theory uh, is highly suggestive and pretty scary. Well, if you remove judicial review and the state legislatures had the ultimate authority, certainly over state elections, but in terms of federal elections, wouldn't they be the same legislature that would put forth the slate of electors, the very effort that Eastman and Cleta Mitchell and Sidney Powell and Giuliani were making with their fake electors. In other words, you wouldn't have to put fake electors up. The legislatures would put up their own electors, ensuring a Republican victory. Sure. I mean, I, I don't want to sound too pedantic about this. I mean, you're, you're right at a 10,000-foot level, but actually there are two election clauses in the Constitution, one dealing with the case, the, the question that's before the court in the North Carolina case, and the other dealing with the question that really was before the court back in, in the 2000 election, Bush against Gore, that deals with uh, the power of, of state legislatures over the choice of electors. And the two clauses are somewhat differently worded. So, I mean, yes, as I say, you're, you're right at the 10,000 foot level, but the link between the two would not be automatic. You'd have to you'd have to play it out on the ground in an actual case. So back to the article at the Atlantic, what in the world happened to the Supreme Court? So you're making the case, Linda Greenhouse, that that in effect that the battle over Bork, which was fairly intense, that what happened was that Bork's opponents that felt that they'd won. They blocked him. And of course, he was against the Voting Rights Act and even uh, uh, the right to privacy. But the opponents of Bork may have fooled themselves into thinking that by defeating the man, they had defeated the idea of reframing the constitutional narrative. But the Bork battle just went underground to be carried on, not only by its grizzled veterans, but by a generation of activists barely old enough to remember the initial round. And of course, you referred to Leonard Leo, who's had an extraordinary influence 
over basically picking not just the last three that Trump put on the court, but other members of the court as well by the Federalist Society and Carrie Severino as well. The only people that seems to have been warning about this for some time are Sheldon Whitehouse. I know he's got a, a bill before the Senate. Why has this one man ended up having such inordinate influence? One man, you mean Leonard Leo? Yes, Leonard Leo. Yeah, he has managed to attract gazillions of dollars. He has an empire of uh, kind of uh, obscurely named separate entities that all report to him. And he is a very ardent and very conservative Roman Catholic and has gathered around him um, a kind of a group of like-minded uh, co-religionists. And I think there's actually um, uh, some deep questions about the theocratizing of the United States that is going on now at the hands of these handpicked justices on the court, uh, very deep and uncomfortable questions, uncomfortable even to raise, but uh, we, we need to have more, a more robust conversation about the many levels on which what we see going on is actually happening. But Leonard Leo and company represent, not even within the Catholic faith, a fringe group of Opus Dei, let alone in the broader American sort of uh, panoply of religions. So that in itself is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, to have not just so many Catholics on the court, but so many far-right Catholics, some of whom, well, the person who picked them is a part of a, of a secret sect that doesn't even tell you who, who their membership is, and it was started by a Spanish fascist priest in the 1920s. So there's certainly some questions there. Yeah, you you said it, and you know, you and I are going to get some blowback from having had this discussion on the air, but it needs to be discussed. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm certainly not opposed to the Catholic Church, and I'm sure you aren't either. But as you say, this is this represents um, a, a very far right um, version of Catholicism uh, with uh, interests that are not shared by the great majority of the American public, including American Catholics. But the secrecy that I mentioned vis-a-vis -vis who belongs to Opus Day is also reflected, is it not, in the dark money vehicles that they've created. Now, Leonard Leo didn't create, obviously, those vehicles. That was the Citizens United decision. But boy, has he known how to exploit them. And we wouldn't even know about the $1.6 billion that he got just from one donor, but for investigative journalism. That is true. And Sheldon Whitehouse uh, is to be commended for his persistence, his lonely persistence in trying to shed some light on the secret world of uh, who speaks to the Supreme Court and who pays for those who speak to the Supreme Court. Well, indeed, he's speaking out on the on the, the issue that I just brought up, the, the 90 million that have uh, found its way into this, uh, into influencing the Morvi Harper independent state legislature. He said, rarely has such a noxious assemblage of Amici appearing before this court and their secrecy about their funders and connections does this court 
a grave disservice. So what I find even more troubling, apart from the lack of religious diversity on this court, is that it seems to be a combination of moral authoritarianism and laissez-faire capitalism. And I don't know how those two came into play, but one of the biggest funders of Leonard Leo have been laissez-faire capitalists like the Koch brothers and, and the more recent donor. So have you been able to figure that one out, Linda Greenhouse, how you bridge those two notions of laissez-faire capitalism on the one hand and religious authoritarianism on the other? Well, actually, they do go hand in hand, and there's a fair amount of scholarship on this. And the the connection being, I hope I can I can uh, bring this to ground. It's a complicated set of connections, but the connection is that, along with um, the the right wing Christian nationalism that seems to be uh, flowing over the landscape comes the notion of um, a kind of sense of individual personal responsibility. That is to say, a real abhorrence of anything that looks like a social safety net. You're, you're responsible for your fate. And don't tell us about the historical context and what happened to your ancestors. Don't give us any context at all. You're responsible. And the greatest danger comes from collectivism comes from socialism. So these things are all connected. It's a, it's a, a theological view of the role of the individual in the state. So Donald Trump understood this very well. And in his campaigns, his two campaigns, he would go around assuring uh, audiences on the religious right that Whatever the whatever was going to happen to the country, it was never going to give up God and become a socialist country. Well, of course, the United States is not going to become a socialist country. It, it's a it's a totally made up threat, and so most of us would hear language like that and say, "Huh?" But to the religious right, addresses a deep fear that the role of the individual is somehow going to be subsumed into or w- within an economic system that would undermine, you know, the basic role of the individual vis-a-vis the individual's God. So that's how I understand it. And that's how I think the current uh, scholarship on this issue uh, understands it. Well, in terms of what the Federalists have wrought, though, I mean, we have the recent case of Judge Cannon in Florida, who Trump went shopping to, to get a, a friendly ruling, and he certainly got more than he asked for. And she delayed the uh, inquiry into the stolen classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, but then was recently slapped down by the 11th Circuit, who really rebuked her in a, in a way that I imagine in the legal profession is kind of humiliating. So that's, I don't know whether you could make the case that how many of these unqualified young judges they put on the courts uh, that are so ideological there are. I don't know what the percentages are. Obviously, two of the of the three on, on the appeals Eleventh Circuit appeals court ruled uh, according to according to the law, and they were two two were appointed by Trump and one third one by um, George W. Bush. So, you're teaching law at, at Yale. I, I understand the Federalists started because they felt there were too many liberals in law schools and teaching at law schools. So, 
Is there a countervailing movement anywhere to, to swing the pendulum back, given the enormous uh, domination of our federal bench by federalists? Well, we've got to take a very long view. I mean, there are organizations uh, on the, you say, moderate left. Uh, the American Constitution Society is an organization of uh, lawyers and, and law students that sort of aimed at presenting a, a progressive vision of the Constitution. Uh, but, you know, one problem is that funders on the left that support uh, progressive organizations have, in recent history, uh, uh, have a very hard time taking the long view that the funders of the Federalist Society have been so successful in, in, in taking. You know, you don't need a deliverable to be announced at the National Press Club uh, next month. You need to grow a new generation or two of moderately progressive law students who become lawyers, who become judges. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. It took the Federalist Society... Uh, you know, a good 25 years, a, a, more than a generation to accomplish what it's accomplished. So that, that's what progressives are up against. Well, it is obviously a hugely successful uh, movement, particularly the extent to which Leonard Leo has been able to put not just the three Trump people on, but the Federalists have put, I think, the other, have they put five of the six? I mean, I think Scalia is also a Federalist. So their track record is extraordinary. So going back, though, just in the last couple of minutes to your article about how you argue that the Bork battle went underground, that people who defeated Bork sort of rested on their laurels and fooled themselves into thinking that by defeating the man, they defeated uh, what he was all about. And his legacy, of course, has been picked up by Leonard Leo and Carrie Severino and others. And um, so it leads me to the question of, if you can't level the playing field in terms of finding a countervailing organization or building a countervailing organization on the scale of the Federalists, what can you do about the clearly inadequate confirmation hearings that allowed Alito to get through with very few questions? Had they run out of steam after Bork? What, what happened there? And particularly, you know, when you, with Gorsuch, the first justice that Trump got on the court, he, uh, I mean, I don't think they even asked about the frozen truck driver case, which is so appalling, where he was essentially auditioning for the Supreme Court by, by ruling alone that a truck driver whose rig had broken down in the dead of winter, who left his rig to get help, should have frozen to death. I mean, I just don't get why they don't ask questions and then they talk about balls and strikes and useless kind of aphorisms. Is there any way to make those hearings more to the point? And in the case of Kavanaugh, of course, they descended into theatrics, which was easy to make fun of. But unfortunately, um, he's on the court. Well, of course, the only reason that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett were confirmed is that uh, Mitch McConnell in the spring of 2017, in order to get Gorsuch confirmed, abolished the filibuster for Supreme Court justices none of those three would have survived a filibuster that, you know, they, they were, they were confirmed by the barest majority. And with the filibuster, you need 60 votes. 
so, you know, the way to protect against that is to bring back the filibuster. It's just a matter of Senate rules. It doesn't require even legislation or anything like that. Uh, but of course, neither side wants to unilaterally disarm. So, uh, you know, whether that could ever happen or whether that's just a fantasy, but that would be a very easy fix, I think. So you don't think it's a question of asking better questions? No, I don't think it's a question of asking better questions. A lot of the questioning is is performative, right? Mm. It just comes down to who's going to cast a vote and how many votes are going to be cast. So it's really a it, it's a structural question, not not a mm. not a who asks the smart question and gets the right answer. But the fact that they have life tenure seems to propel a certain arrogance on the part of Alito and Gorsuch, that almost a smugness that. They they don't care, you know. White House Senator White House argues that the kind of plutocratic takeover of the Supreme Court is a way to grab power without having to go through the legislature or the executive branch, where these ideas of the agendas of plutocrats would never be voted on and would never get a majority. But they found a way to do it through this other more vulnerable branch of government. Do you do you ascribe to that theory? Well, it's it's, it's broader than that, Ian. I mean, you know, abortion will still be the law. The right to abortion will still be the law of the land if it were put to a vote. Sure. Uh, you know, in in the wake of the Dobbs ruling, there were well, right before and then after the Dobbs ruling, there were uh, six state referenda. Uh, where abortion was on the ballot and uh, the right to abortion prevailed in all six. So, uh, you know, the fact that the court took this into its hands, uh, you know, it was just another facet of, of uh, you know, what Senator Whitehouse is, is complaining about, whether it's plutocracy uh, in, in, in his view or uh, the social issues that if you put them to a vote, uh, would have a very different outcome in the public uh, as opposed to uh, an outcome in the hands of five five or six Supreme Court justices. Who don't, who apparently don't care that the, that they, these are unpopular views. If not, and not only they don't care, they seem to be quite proud of the fact that they can stick it to us. I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much. Okay. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Linda Greenhouse, who's a lecturer in law and a senior research scholar in law at Yale Law School. She covered the Supreme Court for the New York Times between 1978 and 2008 and received the Pulitzer Prize in 1998 and the Goldsmith Career Award for Excellence in Journalism for Harvard's Kennedy School in 2004. Her books include Before Roe v. Wade, Voices That Shaped the Abortion Debate Before the Supreme Court's Ruling, the Burger Court and the Rise of the Judicial Right, and most recently, Justice on the Brink, the Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 Months that Transformed the Supreme Court. And she has an article at The Atlantic, What in the World Happened to the Supreme Court? We can take a brief station break and explore the curse of the man-child and what it will take to be able to ignore the two attention-seeking narcissists, Musk and Trump, who dominate the headlines with infantile trolling and tacky grifting. Stop beating that fudge. Cause here come the judge. Don't nobody budge. Cause here come the judge. Judge Shorty is presiding today. And he don't take no stuff from nobody. No kind of way. Hey boy, take off that hat. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Roth, who has written about sports, politics, and culture in Deadspin, The New Republic, SB Nation, New York Magazine, New York Daily News, and other publications. He's the co-founder of Defector Media, where his latest articles are major announcement from Donald Trump turns out to be NFTs of his head photoshopped onto a skinny man in a tuxedo, and the eternal mystery of a rich man's politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Thanks for, Roth. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm sorry that you had to read that first headline. Doesn't sound <laughs> any better out loud <laughs> than it did in my well, head. The amazing thing is, David, that he sold out of those ridiculous trading cards. I yeah. mean, it's worse than a sucker born every minute. This yeah, is... I'm, I think he uh, they priced him to move. Uh, you know, at a mere ninety nine dollars, they really kind of sell themselves. Right. Uh, it's even accounting for the usual sort of scamminess that comes with the NFT market. And I have a coworker who understands it a bit more than me and was kind of explaining that there's a possibility that a lot of these were bought by the people that were issuing them that licensed Trump's likeness for this. Oh, he means like authors who buy their own books, right? Sort of. I mean, this yeah. is, it, it's funny. It's like a Trump family value that like bulk buys or just how <laughs> business gets done. But right. <laughs> it's confusing, uh, you know, by design. I think with a lot of the NFT stuff uh, right. back when that market was booming, or I guess around this time last year, that because that was on the blockchain and because there were all these sort of you know, this wallet buys this and then money goes to another one. You could sort of see what was happening without exactly knowing what was going on. These are not really NFTs. These are just like JPEG images that you can buy from a website that are yeah. limited in number. Uh, and so in a strange sense, the old scammy NFT market, which was full of wash trades and money laundering and all kinds of other janky behavior was... I'd say objectively more on the up and up than this. <laughs> well, then, of course, your other articles about Elon Musk. And I mean, we know that in America, there's doubt as to whether we're a democracy or a plutocracy. And what I find particularly frightening about Elon Musk and also Zuckerberg is that these new, the new plutocrats from Silicon Valley control the information space. And, you know, at least the old robber barons used to deliver stuff. But these guys are delivering really toxic stuff and they're changing or dumbing down or even turning the American mind into a form of, of political dementia. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I don't care for it personally. Uh, the thing that has confused me the most with Musk and Twitter, because with Zuckerberg, I think that he built something that didn't have a sufficient amount of thought behind it in order to be the sort of, whether he ever intended it to be this or not. They talked about it as, you know, sort of a way to bring the world closer together and to foster human, you know, I don't know, excellence, flourishing, whatever. It's all these very cynical and very obviously <laughs> manufactured terms. Uh, and then it just got too big and they didn't know how to run it. Musk took over a company that was, you know, very poorly run in a lot of ways, not just as a business, but I think that, you know, you can see through the, uh, the that guy Mudge that used to work for them, the whistleblower, uh, that it was a very insecure company. It was kind of just sort of ad hoc in the way that things that start out small and get big very fast can be. 
And he somehow made it much stupider and much more arbitrary than it was. And that is really, uh, you know, where you can sort of, as you said, I mean, like, Robert Barron is not anybody that we are, <laughs> like, should be praising or certainly being wistful for. There's a lot of dumb legacy stuff in this country that is still going back to, you know, whatever, 100 years ago's version of bad capitalism. And yet, as you said, you know, coal got from one place to another. Twitter is now very difficult to use. When I use the web version of it, the fan on my laptop starts blowing a gale. It's it's failing in ways that uh, I think would, you know, make a, a Carnegie blush. But the fact that we're talking about Trump and Musk is a problem, and it has been for some time, particularly yeah. since Trump came on the scene and he was a joke in New York and suddenly he became the president of the United States. So the idea that we're talking about these two man-childs who are obviously psychologically defective and, <laughs> and definitely infantile and hopelessly narcissistic as well, this I find really troubling. Is how do we get out of this trap of talking about a billionaire narcissist and a wannabe billionaire narcissist. I mean, I feel like the short answer is a much higher marginal tax rate <laughs> that is uh, prosecuted much more vigorously, although that's probably, um, you know, there's there's got to be, that's a practical fix for billionaires have too much money. It is not a fix for what ails the culture in continuing to elevate people like this to positions of power. Trump was sort of different in the sense that I think he had been famous for so long as the sort of living metonym for a rich guy who gets away with stuff. But Musk is a, a sort of a newer type. And in some ways, the fame that he had before he's made, I mean, I think it's fair to say like a pretty reactionary turn um, in his politics. The, the fame that he had before that was the sort of thing where you know, growing up as I, I grew up in New Jersey, like I saw Donald Trump on the cover of tabloids, you know, all through my youth. And it just it seemed like the man was getting divorced continuously for about 15 years. Like the entire time I was in school, he was um, having some sort of contentious back and forth with uh, someone that he owed money to and wasn't going to give it. Musk was not seen as a ridiculous figure, I think, until very recently. I think that, you know, if you were to ask my dad, who watches MSNBC, how he felt about Elon Musk. If you'd asked him a year ago, he would have admired him very much. I think he would have thought of him as, you know, somebody who could potentially be a sort of savior because of the, you know, the battery technology for Tesla or because of SpaceX. The more you look at those innovations of his, the less miraculous they seem and the less he seems to have to do with anything about them that is especially admirable. But that sort of background is different. I think that there were there was a time when people were fooled by Musk. And I think with Trump, there was, I suppose there was too, you know, like I was a child in the early 80s. There might have been a time when people thought that he had big ideas that were worth listening to. But for the most part, he was just kind of a, an oaf. Like, and until he had a reality show that made him look like a decisive boss, I don't think that anybody really thought of him as anything other than kind of silly. And, you know, with Musk, there's a lot more undoing uh, that, you know, needs to be done 
I think before people can see him as he is. Uh, the good news is that he posts 200 times a day and every single one of those posts is doing that work. Right. And he, interesting enough, I just talked to Aaron Rupa a couple of days ago. Then no sooner had I interviewed him, he gets banned uh, by yeah. Musk. And then, then Musk has this phony referendum on his Twitter feed and the people have spoken. Pop Aaron's back. Fox Day, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we've had people like William Randolph Hearst having a controlling a media outlet. We also have Rupert Murdoch, these noxious, bilious billionaires that project their own political views on the world. And of course, Fox has become a, a powerful political movement because it's it's brought a lot of people into the Republican Party. And it's, it's worth noting that there were more Republicans voted in the midterms than Democrats did, um, even though the Democrats did better than expected. So how do we deal with this fact that you've got this really dangerous, reckless, reactionary fool and this you know complete 24-7 troller now controlling an important information platform. Is this just a continuum from Hearst through to Murdoch, or is this something that can be dealt with? I just don't, I mean, maybe the only way it can be dealt with is that he goes bankrupt, which is, yeah. sounds like what he's doing. I was going to say, which again, uh, luckily he's, he's hard at work on that. Who knows, you know, this is not going to, we're recording on a Saturday, this will air on a Sunday. Who knows where he's going to be then? But I think that there is, I think that the site itself, that Twitter itself is is probably on borrowed time, not just because of the fact that it's not working very well and that there aren't enough engineers around to keep it upright, you know, sort of in a practical sense, it's not, uh, doesn't seem long for this world. I think there's also, you know, people have, have talked about it a lot, I think sometimes uh, so dramatically that it makes it seem sillier than it actually is. At some point, it's just not going to be a place that you want to hang around anymore. And I've been on there for a long time. I really like it. I am going to miss the people that I met on there. And I don't know necessarily where I'll be able to find all of them. I've sort of explored some of the other new social media sites. They all seem much saner and therefore don't quite scratch the itch in the way that, that Twitter does for me. But this is sort of, I think, less in a, a sort of a Murdoch-y way. I mean, that, that Murdoch has a sort of a discipline to the way that he does business that is not evident anywhere in Musk's portfolio and certainly is impossible to find in the way that he's managed Twitter. And I think that where that that sort of goes, I mean, that, like Murdoch has a political program that he is advancing on various platforms and in various different ways. And that's been true and everybody sort of knows it and some people are into it and some people bore it and that's that. Musk, I think, does have, and I think you can see his politics sort of emerge through his actions here. And yet, I don't think that he has quite squared away what those are. And I don't think that it's the sort of thing where, you know, you can see with Murdoch that this all eventually like militates towards a conservative government and lower taxes and lower regulation and all of that stuff. Musk cares about that those are his politics too. He just doesn't, like Twitter doesn't have the audience that Fox News or the cable news does. It's an influential audience. I think this is the part of it that he's jeopardizing, that if you ban journalists from Twitter, then the credibility that those journalists confer, however obnoxious they might be on there, without that, then Twitter is just the place where people shout at each other. And there's a lot of that on the internet. And I think that that's probably where this 
this happens. I don't know that this sort of speech ever could have existed at this scale without something like this happening. But I do think that you can sort of see without really having to squint uh, sure. how it might unravel for Twitter. So David, in the last minute then, tell me that there's a time coming soon when we won't have to talk about Donald Trump and Elon Musk. Oh boy, I would love it. Um, I can tell you that, but I should add as a caveat that it might be a minute. I think that with Trump, there's sort of, I was so delighted by the NFT advertisement, I think because it felt like the old Donald Trump that everybody was comfortable laughing at, like a man just reading off a teleprompter that's like, I love steak, you know, I have it all the time. Like that version of, of Trump is easy enough to scoff at. I mean, he'll be running for president and, you know, there's going to be tens of millions of Americans that believe he's a divinely ordained redeemer of the country. And that's a strange thing to sort of walk around with, but I don't think that politically he's coming back. I do think that uh, if anybody is going to break the national habit for making vain billionaire types, the main characters in our culture, Elon is maybe just grading enough that he could be the guy where everyone's like, you know what, I'd actually, I'd, I would love to know what uh, Liam Hemsworth is doing right now instead. <laughs> well, they certainly booed him off the stage with with Dave Chappelle. Oh, so yeah. He seems probably... surprised too. I thought right. that, uh, I mean, I don't know what you expect when you're just being introduced. He's not funny. Like the whole idea was like, you want, you, everybody want to see a rich guy? I don't know. <laughs> it was kind of heartening that uh, people still respond that way in that scenario. Well, David, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with David Roth, who has written about sports, politics, and culture at Deadspin, The New Republic, SB Nation, New York Magazine, New York Daily News, and other publications. He's the co-founder of Defector Media, where his latest articles are a major announcement from Donald Trump turns out to be NFTs of his head photoshopped onto a skinny man in a tuxedo and the eternal mystery of a rich man's politics. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by